what what the conversation should be is hey these are immigrants who came to this country and established and established this place there's a reason surrey has a bunch of indo-canadians it's you go where you're comfortable and where you don't have to face as much racism on the count of 3 1 2 hi I'm Ramik Johal. And I'm Carol Eugene Park. This is Decomplicated. Hello. Hi, Carol. How's it going? Good. How are you? Pretty good, man. That's good. Pretty good. That's good. Uh, what the fork are we talking about today, Ramik? So today we've got, it's been a heavy week, a lot of heavy topics this week. Uh, and we've got a really big story to unpack and break down today. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Lower Mainland gang conflict. And to add some context for people who may not be from BC, um, or even those who do live within BC, uh, it's, it's localized to the Lower Mainland. And since December of 2020, there have been at least 15 gang-related deaths. Uh, there's been a number of other shootings where people have been injured. Uh, and these are just the ones that have been um, the people that have been killed. Uh, so this has been something that's been an ongoing issue in BC for some time. Uh, the last time we've seen this kind of violence was 2009. Uh, again, for those who don't know, there was a lot of public shootings, a lot of deaths, a lot of just brazen violence, gun violence in BC back then as a result of the gang conflict. And so this has kind of re-emerged for the first time to that level. Now it's always been present, um, but this is the first time we've we've been seeing, you know, at parking lots outside of Walmart um, in the busy suburbs or um, outside a Cactus Club Cafe restaurant um, and just very outside the airport, um, outside YVR, Vancouver International Airport. So we've been seeing a lot of just emboldened violence. And I think that it's easy to get caught up in how shocking it is. But I think sometimes we, f we fail to ask, why is this happening? And why are so many young men uh, falling through the cracks. And that's part of why we decided to do a two-parter for this conversation because it's not just about gang violence, but it's kind of behind the scenes of how, like you said, um, these young boys kind of can fall through the cracks or we miss them through various systems that we have in place or programs. And so today we have a really interesting conversation with Pamela Sanga of Diversity BC. She's a clinical counselor who works with youth and she and a number of uh, community partners work at helping youth um, at a very young age and giving them coping mechanisms and counseling to kind of stop this pipeline at a very young age because it does need to happen. These supports need to happen at a very young age. And she talks a little, little bit about that, the work she does, and why she thinks so many people are falling through the cracks uh, from the context of somebody working in Surrey and from the context of herself as a South Asian uh, woman as well. So here is that conversation and we hope you enjoy. Hello. Hi, Pamela. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on to the show with us. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. So welcome to Decomplicated, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking to Pamela Sanga, who is a clinical counselor in Surrey, BC. And we're going to be talking about the ongoing uh, conversation and dialogue around the Lower Mainland gang conflict, because I feel like for a lot of us, what we end up asking is, 
or what I end up asking anyways, is why does this keep happening? And the same dialogue and the same rhetoric continues to be perpetuated by the media. We, including us, we are the media. So we are also implicated in this. Um, but we want to have a, a bigger conversation about why these things are happening and what questions we should be asking instead of who should we be blaming. So first and foremost, Pamela, I want to let you introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Why did you agree to talk to us? <laughs> uh, I'm Pam um, and I'm a clinical counselor. Uh, I do have private practice, but most of my work done in this space is through Diversity Community Resources Society. And through Diversity Community, Re Community Resources Society, I work uh, with SAFE, which is, um, I'm sure you guys have heard, which is Surrey Anti-Gang Youth Empowerment. Um, and I work on a table to provide a multidisciplinary approach for at-risk youth um, and those youth that are entrenched and their families. And so I provide a clinical lens um, and I support in regards to mental health because that's where this conversation I feel should be happening is in regards to um, just unpacking trauma, trying to understand, trying to provide help um, and giving communities a space where they can talk to people and have confidentiality. Uh, and so that's that's what I do. And I work with mostly youth and their families, but I work with a lot of partners and we are approaching it way differently than um, it was approached when I was in high school. And I think that, you know, the work that I'm doing now will obviously take 5, 10, 15 years to really be implemented and to be seen um, in this kind of landscape that we're currently in but yeah that's kind of what I do right now um I'm I'm just curious what you mean by like how it's different from a from a few decades ago could you maybe expand on on what you mean by that yeah so when I was a kid it was it wasn't really a conversation around mental health. It wasn't a conversation about preventative measures. It wasn't a, a thing to be like, hey, I'm 12, 13, 14, 15, and I am going through a lot of stuff at home and I need therapy. Like that wasn't something that was discussed, especially in Indo-Canadian communities, right? We're, we're, still, we're still not there yet within those communities. We're slowly moving the needle forward. Um, but now there's actually an active conversation about, hey, if we can engage these people early on and provide them with supports, we can probably help change the gang landscape. And so I know you said that you kind of provide consultation from a mental health kind of perspective. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what your work is in that realm in terms of, yeah, preventing and or helping youth and um, kind of giving them those resources or at least talking about what resources are even needed? Yeah. So I work with a bunch of partners and I, we take on a multidisciplinary lens. So I'm there, I provide therapy. So if someone has gone through trauma or someone has anxiety or someone has depression or someone feels isolated, you know, they can speak to a counselor. There's also a lot of other people on, at the table, such as options, PCRS, PICS, RCMP, SD36, who provide mentorship, outreach, case management, um, support all around. So we have this established like circle that provides support and you know diversity has their own programs within our within our um kind of cohort that also can 
you know, work to provide income assistance, like income assistance or employment or um, trauma counseling, you know, whatever it might be. And so I specifically at the chart table and with um, youth and uh, their families kind of provide just a safe space for them to discuss and come to me with whatever it is they're worried about. Um, and then I also can like then connect them to wherever they may be needing connection. There's a lot of the times people will be like, you know, there needs to be more that's happening or there's not enough happening. So where are these gaps and what are they and um, what's kind of lacking systemically? Honestly, it's funding. We are... We are a bit inundated. Um, There are wait lists. There's a shortage of male counselors. It would be so amazing to have more men in this kind of realm. And um, we essentially um, need more funding because that's kind of where where there may be. We hope that there isn't gaps. Right. But there are wait lists because, you know, we get inundated with clients. And then in order to provide the adequate amount of care for clients, you know, you don't want to be overworked because there's high burnout in my field. So if we had more funding and we could have more staff and we could have more clinicians, that would be amazing. Yeah. And on that thread, so we did some research um, about this, you know, the BC government announced they're investing $8.6 million in, in grants for communities and families dealing with gun and gang violence. And it was distributed amongst 221 organizations around the province. Um, I was doing just like my own sifting through this. Um, and from some of the organizations that I identified, uh, there was approximately $400,000 that was going towards similar organizations in Surrey. To me, that doesn't seem like that much money in the grand scheme of things. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on this investment? And like, what would you want to see come out of this this money? I so uh, one like coming from nonprofit, I'm grateful that they're providing funding. Right. Um, And also like we we work very hard and I think that it's amazing to even get that. Um, I would like it to be spent on exactly what I said to reduce our wait lists, have more people come in and be able to help um, approach things more from a multidisciplinary end. So we don't don't work in silos and no one's like working specifically individually. And you know what I mean? And there isn't isolation. Um, plus, it gives it gives clinicians an opportunity to not feel isolated as well. Right. Where you can like ask for assistance and provide a better level of care. Um, so I I appreciate any funding that we get and I would ultimately love to see it spent on programs, mentorship programs, counseling, therapy, um, initiating more male counselors to enter this field and things like that. And I feel like one part of this conversation is people are always like, you know, culture is a big aspect or so people say. And so I'm just wondering, like, how big of a role does culture play in all of this? And also, I mean, how have systems in this country fail these individuals who get who get involved? So the conversation around gang landscape in Surrey um, is a a little bit interesting because if you look at statistics, Surrey's not top tier. It's not number one in um, crimes of this nature, but in the, in the news, it's portrayed that way. And obviously that's a part of a systemic problem that maybe needs a little bit of undoing. Um, but in regards to, um, 
it culture plays a significant role. We come from a collectivist culture. And by we, I mean my culture specifically in Surrey is majority Indo-Canadians and we are a collectivist culture. However, we are so individualistic when it comes to problems in our homes um, because we just don't want anyone to think that there's anything going on within the four walls of our house. Um, and so they try to deal with it just themselves. And usually that is just like, push it down, trudge through because I'm an immigrant and I want my kids to succeed and survive. But like, there's no thriving allowed, if that makes sense. And it is not an inexpensive place to live. Right. And so I think culture plays a huge role. And I think it is that collectivist versus individualistic that really like kind of shapes how this discussion is had. Um, And so, I mean, for myself, I think that like what I always feel after every single shooting is like grief. And I feel like there's not a lot of conversation around that because it's like, oh, these people chose their their path. And um, the public safety minister, uh, Mike Farnworth, said Um, these gangsters end up in jail or they end up dead. They are mourned by no one except for their families. Um, And I mean, as somebody who's grown up here, as somebody who belongs to this community, seeing people who look like my brother die is not, I I do mourn for those people because I feel like there could have been something that happened before it got to that point. Yes, they made those choices, but it's like, how did we fail them? How did we fail them? So I want to know what you think about the public safety minister saying something like this and and what you think is is how we are failing these these boys. I like to as a as a clinical counselor, I come from a really empathetic lens and I don't think that anyone deserves to be in a gang or be killed, right? And I think the conversation should really be around how did we miss them? Right. Like, how did we miss? Where did we miss? So um, and I think now that 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 conversation is hopefully moving forward. And I know with my work and my partners and like at diversity, it definitely is. Um, But it's a matter of providing supports in like in elementary school, in high school and normalizing mental health and recognizing that it's a really hard place to live and recognizing that trauma and bullying play a very key role in a lot of these conversations. Because if you are bullied, that is traumatic. You know what I mean? And I think that kind of unpacking that is what needs to be done. And I I just... Families have to be included in the conversation. It cannot just be a conversation about a specific youth that got murdered. There is an entire family system behind that that is either trying to help, wants to prevent this, doesn't know how, doesn't have access to the resources. And we just have to remove barriers and we have to continue to remove barriers so that those people can have these conversations so that we don't have people dying. This might seem like a silly question but uh, could you expand on like how bullying is a factor into the potential child like getting involved like what like psychologically or, or like how does that affect them like that it creates insecurity and it creates isolation right and um and that's kind of a really great place for somebody to swoop in and then begin grooming someone for a specific lifestyle because you're not comfortable when you're being bullied. You don't feel good in your own skin. They amplify those things because they usually bring them up. Um, also, even if you're remotely different, sometimes it's like just not 
not great. And that's kind of how it works, right? It's just about isolation um, and insecurity. What One thing that you said is there should be resources in elementary and high schools. And like one thing, again, like anecdotally that I've seen is like younger and younger kids know like all of the deep, like I know kids in high school that like will be talking to me like cousins or friends, siblings will be like, yeah, this gang is fighting with that. I'm like, how do you know who's doing what? And so like, yeah, one, how do they know this? And two, why do you think they're getting groomed at such a young age? So we've been noticing a trend of more of younger and younger individuals um, who are at risk and also a lot more women and females and girls, um, which is an interesting it's been very interesting the last little while kind of noting these significant changes. Um, I think you're very impressionable when you're a kid. I think that like the three of us could probably recall all of the horrendous things that happened to us in elementary and high school, like at the drop of a hat. Right. And I think that's, that's how our brains work. They feed us these narratives and, you know, they'll continue to replay them. So I think if someone comes in and is kind of like a, like a, I don't know, like a beacon of like shiny things, right? Um, It's very easy to be distracted. And also kids these days have a computer in their hands, right? And I don't know about you, but I get a little insecure after being on Instagram for 15, 20 minutes. Like I don't have money to get all of this stuff. Like what, what am I doing wrong with my life? Like I'm just sitting here with a master's. Like what I can't afford a house in Surrey, like what's happening. Right. Um, and so I think a lot of it is also embedded. This is a very complex layered conversation, but it's also embedded in affordability. And the fact that, you know, it got very expensive to live here very quickly, very quickly. Right. And even me, I'm born and raised in, in Canada, in Surrey, how is it that I, as an individual who doesn't have any student debt, is struggling to buy a home within my own city, right? And so I think this is why this influence comes in, um, because it, it, at the end of the day, if someone's making what I make in a year, in a week, it's kind of difficult to have that conversation about justifying when there are a lot of like news briefings or press conferences there seem to be like a lack of humanity when we are talking about people who uh, got involved in gang violence and it didn't work out uh, well in the end for them and it seems like you know x-man from this neighborhood died whereas a lot of other kind of violent instances it's more like oh this person struggled a lot and they were unable to get the help so why do you think there is that lack of humanity when we are talking about specifically um young men in surrey who die because of the gang violence that they are a part of because they think that we don't have hardships because we come from these big giant houses and we live in Surrey, BC. Um, and as upper middle class men, right, with parents who have have these homes and you know have have these things, there's a different picture. But what they don't, what what the conversation should be is, hey. These are immigrants who came to this country and and established this place. There's a reason Surrey has a bunch of Indo-Canadians. You go where you're comfortable and where you don't have to face as much racism, right? And within these homes, that conversation isn't happening. Like 
How is an Indo-Canadian mom struggling? What are her struggles? What's happening with dad? Um, these people work all day, six, seven days a week, and they it's a grind, right? And I think that that conversation isn't had, and that's really we we have to focus on the families. And we're making it so singular and it's so interesting because it's not an individualistic culture. So how can we just make it about the boy that died, right? There's an entire collectivist culture behind him, an entire family. And obviously something there has broken down and something terrible has happened in order for all of this to transpire. And I, I think the conversation should really be shifted and focused on that, on the family aspect, which is what we do at diversity, right? Like I don't approach it as, hey, just the, just this kid needs counseling. It's like, hey, how are mom and dad doing? How are siblings doing? Let's provide a multidisciplinary lens so we can make sure that the family is supported. Because if the family is supported, then, you know, hopefully if there's a trickle down effect to create some more solid ground. And on that note, though, I, I want to ask you about the, the family side of things, because I feel like another thing that comes up often is people will say, oh, where are the parents in all of this? Or why aren't the parents talking to or cooperating with the police? Or why aren't the parents, you know, family members, you you know things, why aren't you, you doing anything? So what are your thoughts on kind of this blame being passed on to parents? And, and what have your observations been in terms of the parents and families that you deal with? I think there's a lack of understanding that these people came to a country where they weren't legal and they weren't considered um, people of this country. And a lot of them still aren't Canadian citizens. They're permanent residents. And if you do something as a permanent resident, you can be sent back. Right. It, actually, if you have dual citizenship, even as a Canadian, you can be sent back. Like even if you're a Canadian citizen. And I think the conversation isn't that that's not involved in the conversation. Um I think that crossing borders and creating a life somewhere new that isn't your homeland has its own fears that we can't even begin to understand. And there's a level of intergenerational trauma that gets passed down and that we don't have that conversation enough. There's just a lack of understanding and how trauma works and how it gets passed down. But Parents that I talk to want the best for their kids. If you think a single parent wants their kid to be in a gang and potentially die, that's ridiculous. Of course they don't, right? And I think it's about giving them access to get the help that they need in order to kind of in intercept. So for um, Canadians across this country who are getting a very narrow narrative of what's happening in Surrey, what questions should they be asking themselves or what questions should we be asking our policymakers about the violence that's happening and, and is still happening? I think it's where did we miss and how can we fix that miss? Right. It's like, OK, where what where where did where was the breakdown? OK, if it was here, then let's get in there and let's try to assess it at that point. Right. Because prevention is so much better than what's happening on the other end. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. This was such a lovely, very important conversation. We're so grateful to you. Thank you for having me on. It's definitely a very complicated conversation. <laughs> What the fork, people? What the fork? Ramnik, what the fork is up? I've got some some things, some things that are making me say what the fork. So let's let's just dive right into it, shall we? So my first WTF is about tennis 
superstar Naomi Osaka. Now, for those of you who don't know, maybe you're not a tennis person, Naomi is a young tennis superstar is honestly the only way that I would describe it. She's kind of taking the tennis world by storm. She's been uh, just an absolute force. And most recently, she's made, made headlines because she withdrew from the French Open. So Naomi was actually fined for deciding not to go to press conferences due to mental health reasons. So normally, for those who don't know, tennis players and usually any other athletes are, are required to do press as part of tournaments or playoffs, etc. And so that's just a part of the way things go before or after games. They're required to do media interviews. And this time around, Naomi had publicly issued a statement saying that she wanted to prioritize her mental health. And so she said that she was opting to not participate in any press because she says that sometimes it, it impacts her, her mental health. And so keep in mind, Naomi is 23 years old. So for her to publicly you know, admit that she's having challenges with her mental health and admitting that there's a lot of pressure involved, uh, that's, that's huge. That's huge. And we talk a lot about mental health for athletes and how there needs to be more of a conversation here. Uh, so the fact that she did that was was great. Afterwards, however, um, she was actually given a fine by the tournament for not choosing to do any press. And so as a result, she issued a statement, which again, so brave of her to do to publicly double down on her on her boundaries, which she was trying to affirm to protect herself, to protect her mental state. But what bothers me is that she had to go deeper into talking about her mental health, which is already such a vulnerable thing in order to be heard. So Naomi withdrew from the tournament and talked about in her statement how she, you know, never wanted to trivialize mental health, but she's struggled with uh, long bouts of depression and it's been something that she's struggled to cope with. And on top of that, she struggles with social anxiety and is just an introverted, introverted person in general. And so she said that I generally get a lot of anxiety before I speak to media and she was trying to exercise self-care by 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 skipping these press conferences. But as a result, she decided that she's going to take some time away from the court. And she said, quote, I really want to work with the tour to discuss ways we can make things better for the players, press and fans. Anyways, I hope you're all doing well and staying safe. I'll see you when I see you, end quote. So I think this just bothers me because she already said she was struggling and I feel like that should have been the end of the conversation. She just wanted to focus on playing and focus on herself. And instead, she was forced to talk about her mental health so publicly. But I saw this tweet that I just want to end off. I just want to read this tweet from at written by Hannah, because she compares the ways that the media villainizes Serena Williams for being, quote, aggressive. And then the way that now Na Naomi is kind of being penalized for being too vulnerable or um, for being too kind of soft, I guess. So the the the, the tweet the, <laughs> the tweet is, quote, it was just a few years ago that Naomi's demure demeanor was used to juxtapose against Serena's aggression. And now the same thing Naomi was once exalted for is what she's being criticized for. Misogynoir is so flexible in its cruelty, end quote. And so that's my WTF, sending love to Naomi right now because I think it's very difficult to have to publicly talk about stuff like this and to have to be penalized for just wanting to talk about your mental health. And athletes are people first, so WTF. 
to the French Open. Uh, Carol, what is your WTF? My what the fork is, oh my goodness, Romney, where do I be? Where do I begin with the menacity and the caucasity? I, okay, so over the weekend, right, that was May, tw- so on May 28th, Joseph Heath, who is a professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Toronto, he published an opinion piece in the Globe and Mail titled, The term BIPOC is a bad fit for the Canadian discourse on race. So the headline right there, questionable, but we're interested. We're like, okay, what does this white dude have to say about the term BIPOC and what she's not even a part of? But sure. So his whole op-ed is pretty much critiquing why BIPOC should not be a thing that people use in the Canadian context when we're talking about race. And he questions why black or 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 um, B is, is first in in BIPOC when in fact as he says you know when he was born in the 1960s black Canadians made up 0.2% of the population and so it doesn't make sense for black to be first it gets worse though he pretty much suggests that black people in Canada have um not the same history as as they do in the US and that instead of this term we should we should create a new term and you may be asking what is it? It's FIVM. What? Romnik, do you, do you know what FIVM is? FIVM. No, what the hell is that? It, this is his proposed acronym to identify the most important, these are his words, the most important minority groups in Canada. FIVM stands for Francophone, Indigenous, and Visible Minority. What? Did you know that Francophones are one of the most important minority groups in Canada? The fact that he had he had beef with black being first uh, before indigenous and now he's deciding that Francophones deserve a a, a higher a spot over indigenous in this acronym. I'm just fivum. <laughs> Hi, I'm a fivum. Francophones. Look, I'm not saying that, that that French Canadians haven't dealt with their discrimination and prejudices, you know, through the decades from anglophones and, and you know I can sympathize. It, it you know it truly sucks. But to 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 say that Frank Francophones, French Canadians have dealt with more racist bullshit than Black Canadians and Indigenous people. Fivum. To that I say WTF. That's my acronym for this person who wrote this op-ed. <laughs> I just like Fivum. And okay, and I'm just gonna read like one really, really simple quote where a uh, line that he writes, you know, he's like, you know, it's worth noting that the largest group of people in this country who are victimized by British colonialism, subjugated and incorporated into confederation by force are French. Canadians. And this is why the status of the French language has served as the major flashpoint for conflict over minority rights in this country. What the fork? Fivum. That's it. I just, I have nothing to say besides it's disgusting. Yes. You know, lots of people, lots of groups and communities have been oppressed by the system, by white supremacy. However, you cannot act like French Canadians have gone through more shit than Indigenous peoples and and Black people. I just... The caucasity is all I'll say. What the fork? Now, we've been talking about, you know, people who are um, wanting to be fake oppressed. And (laughs) I mean, I guess they're not fake oppressed. Uh, Maple Leafs fans are just struggling in many different ways. Uh, So the final WTF is the Maple Leafs. 
Now, it is my personal pleasure when Twitter comes together to dunk on the Maple Leafs. I think it is a beautiful time where we all, from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different NHL teams that we support, come together to dunk on and make fun of the Leafs and their fans. So for those of you who don't watch hockey, I'm talking about Carol, um, and quite frankly, don't don't care, um, the Maple Leafs... Uh, lost in the playoffs to the Montreal Canadiens um, after the Canadiens came back from being down three to one in the series. So things were looking up and, you know, people were excited by people. I mean, Maple Leafs fans. And so the Maple Leafs were eliminated from the playoffs last night. And after this, this is from ESPN, the Maple Leafs have now lost eight straight series clinching games and extend their league-leading 54-year championship drought. Now, again, I'm a Canucks fan, so like when it comes to championships, I really can't talk too much smack, but 54 years of a drought. Now, again, I can't throw stones in a glass house. However, I do think it's hilarious that this is the eighth straight series clinching game that they have lost. And I always think about how people talk about how the Maple Leafs are a young team and and they're going to be so good. And it's like, Okay, but when? <laughs> because it's been it's been a long time, um, and I just wanted to read two tweets that made me sloth. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> very sloth, if you ask me. Um, I wanted to read two tweets that that made me laugh. Uh, one of them was from uh, Nahid Dasani, and he said, "The Toronto Maple Leafs losing a sure sign that life is going back to normal." Uh, which is very true. And another tweet from at Mike Fail, who tweeted, um, all these healthcare professionals in the crowd and they aren't stopping the Leafs from choking. <laughs> and that's because there were a number of uh, first responders and healthcare providers able to watch the game yesterday. So anyways, nature is healing. The Leafs are losing. Things are being going back to normal. And to that, we say WTF and thank you for the comedic relief. Amazing. We love to see it. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode and we'll see you next time. This episode was produced by Remnik Johal, Carol Eugene Park, that's me, and Bray Laquan. Decomplicated is a product of Overstory Media Group. We'll see you in tomorrow. Tomorrow.